us love you in return. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you are an elementary age kiddo or younger, you can now exit uh, stage right over here and head out the magic door. How's everybody doing today? Yeah? It's good for Oklahoma and Oklahoma State football fans, right? Victory is always better in the morning. So, anyway, um, so we have been uh, talking about, well, you guys for the past two years. I say you guys because I was in Guatemala when you started, and I was just getting here when you finished the book of Acts, which took like more than two years. This is a really long time, and... Uh, the, um, we're not done. We're not going to preach from Acts again today, maybe another day, but we are in a process of looking back at some of the lessons that we learned from the book of Acts. And so the first thing we looked at was that as followers of Jesus, we are a sent people, right? The Great Commission, Jesus has given us a commission. He has sent us. We don't have to wait to be sent, but we're an already sent people. Christians are sent people. So if you don't get that concept, you're going to get it hammered on here. Uh, you're a sent person. So The second thing we looked at was that as followers of Jesus, we have been promised and given the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is the power by which we testify to the gospel in the world. It's huge. And uh, the third thing we looked at is as a follower of Jesus, uh, we uh, have a radically altered worldview. Um, Your worldview, right, is the lens through which you view the world. People like me who do not have perfect eyesight, I have glasses uh, that refocus the light so it hits my retina in the right place, right? And... If your worldview is wrong, you'll see the world out of focus, okay? And we're supposed to have a radically altered worldview because of who Jesus is, because we are his followers. The first thing we looked at is that we're supposed to have an altered worldview of how we view people, right? Uh, Jesus went to the least of these. Uh, Jesus, how he loved the broken and the marginalized in society, and everyone else for that matter, uh, that we are supposed to view people very differently uh, from before we were followers of Jesus. The last thing we looked at last week was that we are supposed to have a radically altered worldview of how we view things, our stuff, right? That we do not love things, uh, but that we are supposed to allow the Lord to be our master and that things are supposed to serve uh, his purpose, that we are stewards of the, the things that we have on this planet, money or whatever. Today we're going to look at is that we are supposed to have a radically altered worldview of how we view ourselves. So, um, Let's pray, and then we're going we're gonna to jump into it. So, Lord, we, we, we love you and we need you. Thank you for the people who wrote and, and the people who sing songs that say, I need you, Lord. May we constantly confess our absolute need for you. All people of all time need you, and that is no different today, and it will be no different in eternity. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for helping us understand your word. As you're sitting there right now praying, would you pray for someone next to you? Pray for the person in front or behind you. Um, as Treb says all the time, just be in the habit of praying for other people, especially if you're really mad at them today. Would you pray for them? Uh, ask that the Lord would help them understand the word today. Ask that the Lord would help us to understand more of who he is and how we're supposed to walk together on this planet.
Lord, we love you. We are grateful to you for the reality of who you are. Would you help us understand your word today? Help us understand who you are. Transform us by the renewing of our minds today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, I had to look up the definition of self, right? Which is funny because I, I, I have a very useless degree in psychology in undergrad. And so uh, which the only thing that was good for was going to graduate school but, uh, or, or getting a job at an internet company, which is my first job after I got that degree. So, but, uh, so it's funny that I didn't just know what the word self meant. So you look at a radically altered worldview of self. So I decided to look it up. And here's the funny thing is the first time that word was defined was 1957. So they say, whoever all the people are that say that words get defined at a certain time, apparently before 1957, nobody knew who they were. So, uh, but, or by that time, maybe we were becoming so utterly self-absorbed that we had to finally give it its own definition. But, so the word self means this. It's a person's essential being that distinguishes them from others, or it is the evaluation by oneself of one's worth as an individual. Let me read that again. Self is a person's essential being that distinguishes them from others. Like me, myself, and I, that old joke, right? So it's a, personal, a person's essential being that distinguishes me from someone else, okay? This is the world's definition. Or it is the evaluation, listen, of oneself, or excuse me, the evaluation by oneself of one's worth as an individual. So that in the dictionary that our self-worth is something that we self-define, if you don't see an issue with that, uh, we need to talk because what happens if my definition changes? What happens if, how do I get defined, right? So if Jesus is supposed to alter my worldview of how I view myself, what, what's it supposed to change it from? So let's look at the world, right? And when I say the world, what I'm going to mean is like if you read the New Testament, you've got, uh, we always have three enemies, right? The, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So the world is, well, the devil's the devil, right? We all know who he is. He's famous. The flesh is basically our own constant uh, uh, depravity and, and uh, ruinous stuff that we do in our own lives. That's our flesh. Is that which is contrary to the Spirit of God. And the world is basically the overarching philosophy of the world, right? Everything that's contrary to who God is, that's, that's the world. So, um, talk about world systems or whatever, but it's, it's, an, it's the overarching philosophy of that which is contrary to God's character. Does that sound good? So, who does the world, or how does the world define self or value? What does the world value? What's the value? I mean, you can talk back to it. Anybody, what's the world value? Money. Money. Yeah, that's obvious. Anything else? Power. Power? Woo. Really? What's that? fame, right? Uh, it values us by, by our accomplishments, right? By our achievements, our appearance, how we look, um, how tall we are. You know, someone's tall, dark, and handsome, right? Oh, he's tall, dark, and never say he's like short and fat and white or whatever, you know, like uh, uh, short, white, and ugly. I mean, you never have a, like, oh, it looks just like a hobbit, you know, that's never a, a quality, right? But uh, uh, of course, what's funny is that here is in the Bible, we, we know very little about what they look like, and by all Jesus' descriptions we get from Isaiah, he was actually exceedingly normal-looking, if not on the ugly side of things, which I think is marvelous that God sent us an average-looking Savior, right? And we're going to get into uh, a little bit of that today. So but the world values us by our accomplishments, right? Uh, what, what degree you got, where'd you go to school, how much money do you make, where do you live, uh, 
That's what value is. If someone is successful in the world's eyes, it's because they have those things, right? If they don't have those things, if they live under a bridge or if they live in a small house or they drive a credit car, they're not successful, right? They don't have bright, white, shiny teeth and everything isn't perfect and all their kids aren't, I mean, whatever. It's all just a big bunch of malarkey because it changes according to different cultures. It changes according to different things. But the world values according to a certain standard, Right? So over on this side, you have, in contrast to and in conflict to the world, you have the Word. And when I say the Word, I don't just mean like the words in the Bible. I mean like the Word incarnate, like in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were brought into creation through the Word, whose name is Jesus. That's right. So you have the Word in contrast with the world always. It's fascinating, though, is that Jesus actually came to save the world that is constantly fighting against who he is. So, in the book of Acts, we had this guy, Saul, right, who was no super-duper friend of the church. Uh, as a matter of fact, if y'all remember, when Stephen was murdered, uh, Paul was giving his hearty approval, right? Uh, he was persecuting Christians. He was going into homes, finding where they were meeting, taking mommies and daddies and throwing them in jail, right? He was not a friend of the church. And so, but something happened because his name doesn't stay Saul, does it? Who's the guy that wrote all these letters? His name's Paul. Well, what happened? Well, he had an encounter with Jesus, right? The Lord Jesus literally stopped him in his tracks and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul had a conversion. He was no longer this guy, and so much so that he later changed his name. And God changed him from one person to another. He radically altered his worldview. So real quickly here, if you go with me to the book of Philippians, uh, in chapter 3, we're going to look at something uh, that Paul says about himself, and then we're going to jump back into Philippians chapter 2. I'm on page 900, by the way, which is a nice round number. It's nice. Okay. If you're not on page, just go to Philippians chapter 3. It doesn't matter what page it's on. But anyway, so Philippians chapter 3, verse 04. So this is what Paul is saying, right? Um, He says, therefore, uh, though I myself have reason to have such confidence in, in his flesh, right? So he says, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, he knew the law and he kept it as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless, faultless. Paul, in the eyes of the world, in his time, the Jewish world, right? But in the eyes of the world, he was perfect. He was everything a Jewish mama wanted her boy to grow up and be, right? He went to the right schools. He studied under, under the right guys. He was brilliant. He was on this incredible arc for success, right? You guys remember studying him in, in Acts. He was this incredible guy in the eyes of the world. In Jesus' eyes, he had some issues, Right? Because he stops him on the road, and the risen Lord Jesus encounters him and says, Why are you persecuting me, Saul? And so Saul has this encounter with the risen Jesus, and something changes. So if we keep reading into verse 7, and in contrast to those things that he hung his value upon, was this. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And not only that, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to what? The surpassing greatness 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul had changed. Something had changed in his worldview. He no longer valued his degrees and his success. Even his heritage, he counted as a loss. Even his identity as a people group, he counted as loss. Do you see that? He counted as loss the fact that he was a Jew, the fact that he was of this tribe, the fact that he was perfect in his religious zeal, worthless. Why? Because he wanted to know Christ Jesus. Okay, so my question is, how do we go about evaluating what our view of ourself is and then evaluating it against the Word? And, and the way I want to do that is this. I want to look at uh, something that Jesus did. We're going to go back to Philippians chapter 2. Just flip back a page or whatever. We're going to go back, and I want to look at what exactly Jesus did and learn some of who he is. And from that, the goal, hopefully, is that we're going to get a good model of how we're supposed to evaluate ourselves, okay? What that's supposed to look like. So I'm going to start in, uh, in uh, two verses, first one here, just to kind of give us context here. This is Paul, and he says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Okay, so... Well, Paul is not, it's a rhetorical question, right? He's not saying if you've been encouraged or had comfort or fellowship or tenderness, compassion. He's, he's saying, because you have received these things and make my joy complete by doing what? By, by demonstrating the unity that you have in Christ. And then verses 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I'm giggling because I, uh, I just thought about... A, uh, I'm not going to make a political statement whatsoever, but the fact that we're in an election year makes these verses funny to me because do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, which is basically all that we see on television. But, um, so, but he goes on, and we're going to focus on, on verse 5. So that's the context and what he's told the Philippians. Verse 5, he says this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So he's told them uh, what they are to do and then what they aren't to do. And now he's going to look back and say, okay, so here's where you're going to get your attitude from, Right? So he says, who, speaking of Jesus in verse 6, being in very nature God. I have the, the New International Version, the, the, the good 84 version. Uh, and if you have a different version, it may say a different translation. But it says, who, being in very nature who? God. That, the word in very nature, it means the whole inseparable nature and essence. So that Jesus is the whole inseparable nature and essence God. If you want to know what God looks like, you look to Jesus. He is the whole, inseparable, and in his own nature and essence, he is God. Jesus, being in very nature God, he did not consider a quality to with God something to be grasped or a prerogative to be clung to. Um, he did not consider the fact that he was God, his equality with God, as a prerogative, right, that, that he would hold onto for his own benefit. Does that make any sense? So even though Jesus is God, he did not consider his deity to be something that he would cling to for his own benefit. Now, it's really hard to think about this. I'll be real honest. This passage right here, you could probably preach 150 sermons on and not even begin to scratch the surface of what's going on. So this is deep 
theology. So if as you're peering into this, you start getting lost, then I'm lost with you. Because that's what happens when you peer into the great mystery of the incarnation, which is what happened when God became a man in Christ Jesus, right? If you're feeling overwhelmed, just hang on. Uh, embrace it, because that's walking with Jesus. So, he, being the whole inseparable nature and essence God, did not consider his equality with God something to be clung to, or a prerogative which he would hold on to for his own benefit. But, and every time there's a contrast, so instead of Jesus holding on to his own deity, he emptied himself or made himself nothing. Taking, look at the, uh, the grammar here, the very nature of a servant. So you go back to verse 6, right, when it says, being in very nature God, that Jesus is the very whole inseparable nature and essence of God, right? That he took on the whole inseparable nature and essence of what? Of a servant. The word is the Greek word doulos, and it means a bondservant, someone who would give themselves willingly back to be under a master. And it's the same word that Paul uses of he and Timothy in uh, Philippians 1.1, where he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That Jesus made himself the very nature of a servant. So if you want to know what God looks like, look to Jesus. If you want to know what a servant looks like, Bingo. He is 100% man and 100% God. He is absolutely unique in all of the entirety of the eternity of history. He is it. There's only one Jesus, period. End of story, end of discussion. We can discuss it, but he's it. That's it. There is no other Jesus. He is fully God and fully man. I don't even understand exactly what the ramifications of all of that is, but I believe it to be true because the scripture says it's true. But what does he do with it? He lays aside that privilege. He doesn't stop being God, okay? Jesus was absolutely the creator God when he was a little baby nursing at Mary's breast, okay? Unfathomable. I don't get that. But it's what happened. God became a man and not just a man. He became the very nature of a slave, of a servant, someone who would willingly give themselves over to another person. Being made in human likeness, in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he did what? He humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why would Jesus do that? Why? Anybody have an idea? Love. Love. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world, the word for world is cosmos, meaning the world, which is why they translate it that way. So it means the world, the same world that has fallen, the same world that values all things based on their appearance and their accomplishments. He loves that world so much that he laid aside his own deity. I can't imagine, not his deity, but his prerogative as a deity. Does that make sense? He laid aside his right as God. When Jesus died, Remember, the scripture is very clear. It says he gave up his spirit. He had to do that. He had to let someone kill him. I don't have to do that. If a guy comes and stabs me with a spear or nails me to a cross, I'm just going to die after a while. Jesus had to allow to let that go. He let go his own life. It's incredible. It's unique. It never happened again. So, I love verse 9. When you see a therefore, if you ask what it's there for, right? And it means that because Jesus made himself nothing, took on the nature of a servant, humbled himself, became obedient to death, 
God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in other words, everywhere, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I mean, that's a good ending, right? Of course, it doesn't end there. Uh, because the, the, the Father exalts the Son. Remember when Jesus is going before, uh, right before, after the Last Supper, before he goes, he's praying in, in, in those last chapters of John, those middle chapters. He's praying that God would restore, the Father would restore his glory to him. Restore it, not do it again, but restore it. He laid aside his glory to become a servant. Because we see in Revelation, a very different Jesus, Right? You see, Jesus, Jesus is not coming back to wash people's feet in Revelation, all right? Jesus is coming back as king to rule, and no one's going to vote for him, and no one's going to say, don't come. He's coming back as king, all right, because that's who he is. But he came as a servant, and he died, and then he's our model. We know he's our model because Paul comes back and says, your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. So look, the world values what? Your looks, your money, your accomplishments, your value— And so Paul, before, he had stuck the hooks of his worth and his identity into those things. That make sense? Those are the things in which he was anchored. Those things, right? After he met Jesus, he said, those things are not actually of any value to me anymore. As a matter of fact, I'm going to use a really strong word that they don't translate, but it means a dirty word for garbage, right? Refuse, the stuff we flush down the potty. That's how we consider that stuff the things that he had been anchored in, he considered them absolutely worthless in exchange for what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Okay, what does God value? Well, look what Jesus did. He made himself nothing. It's an emptying of himself. This, the, the, the theory of the kenosis comes from this passage, the emptying of Jesus. And it's a whole, it'll melt your brain if you think about it too long. But, My brain's probably melted anyway. But he emptied himself, made himself nothing, gave up his privilege, the privilege of his deity. And he took the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient. That God values an emptying. He values humility. He values obedience. And then what does he do with the humble? God exalts the humble, because that's who he is. God exalts the humble. So on this side, in contrast to the world, which values our, how much money we make, how pretty we are, what we look like, what we smell like, what our dress is, what our car we drive, how many kids you have. And let's go another level down. When someone says, what do you do? You say, I am such and such, right? I'm a doctor. I'm a nurse. I'm a businessman. I'm a mom. Uh, I'm a teacher. I am a soldier. I'm a pilot. I am a... I, I wash laundry. I, no one just says I am a launderer. never heard that before. But uh, I'm a lawn care guy. Look at the verbiage that we use. I'm a businessman. Are you? What were you before you were a businessman? Uh, I was... Uh, in school to be a businessman? Oh, good. What will you be when you retire? Uh, I will be a retired businessman. Oh, okay. Um, great. Because the reality of it, and let's be honest, I'm a husband and a daddy, and that could be taken away from me today. Right? 
Lord, don't let that happen. But I could cease to be a father and a husband. That could stop. It happens. Uh, Watch the news. Look at Africa. It happens all the time. We're in a fallen, crappy world. And it happens. And sometimes we get smacked with the splashback of sin. That can change, right? So if we base our identity, if we anchor our identity in something that can change, we're setting ourselves up for just not a good time, right? We're setting ourselves up to have, remember that definition I gave? The essential being that distinguishes them from others, the evaluation by oneself of one's worth as an individual. If you evaluate yourself, (laughs) that's such a stupid phrase, I evaluate my own worth. But what if I don't know how to value anything? What if I value myself as worthless? Am I? What does the Bible say? I don't know when to toss that phrase around, but we have to have some kind of standard on which we base our reality. And that's what the Bible gives us. It gives us a standard upon which we base our worldview, upon which we base our reality. So when I evaluate myself, I evaluate myself based on what the Bible says that I am. So I have this uh, card. This may be kind of silly and like from fourth grade, but I have this card in my Bible. And uh, I'm kind of maybe old school, but this one's in Spanish, but I'm not going to read it in Spanish. But um, it, it says, in Christ I am, right? Because sometimes I forget. So I'm just going to read off just a few of these things. And if, if you have put your faith in Christ Jesus for your salvation, all right, there's a whole bunch of things that are true about you. If you have not, if you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus for your salvation, um, the Bible says you're in really big trouble. It says you're dead in your sins, and you're, you're on a, you are under his condemnation, which is a bad place to be. And I beg you, in the name of Jesus, come to him today. Don't walk out the door. Come talk to me. Turn around and say, what's the crazy bearded guy talking about? Talk to somebody, please. If the Spirit is working in your heart, saying, I've never actually really trusted God for my salvation, do it today. But if you have, if you have, there are some certain things that are true about you. All right, I'm just going to read off just a few of these things. I want you to... Uh, so listen, you are forgiven, okay? Your sins before a perfect God have been forgiven. You have been made perfect. That's the word the Bible uses, perfect. It's fascinating because I don't feel perfect. You've been made justified, which means you've been declared righteous before God. You've been adopted. That means that God intentionally chose to pull you out of orphancy and make you his son or his daughter. It's very intense. You don't adopt somebody by accident. You're like, oh, I was walking along, and I, all of a sudden I had an adopted child walking next to me. No. It's a very intentional, very difficult process, right? You're adopted. It means he wanted you. You've been reconciled to God. That relationship between you and God has now been fixed. You're alive, washed. You are chosen. God did not make a mistake. You are born again. That's a phrase that we use all the time, but it's really graphic and amazing when you put it in its application. We are now acceptable before a holy God. I can't work for my salvation, and I can't maintain my acceptance before him. That's what grace is about. I am now made acceptable before a God who is righteous and good, and I can approach the throne of grace. I am holy, credible. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's I'm not even sure what all that means, but I know that it's true. I've been redeemed. It means I've been purchased out of slavery for a purpose. I'm a citizen of heaven. My citizenship is not just here in the United States. 
which, just to remind everybody, has only existed for a small amount of time and I don't, will exist until, I don't know, uh, but your citizenship is not just here. Uh, I love being a citizen of the U.S. It's great, and, but that's not it. My citizenship is not really here. It's in heaven, and that is part of my identity. I've been made clean, and I am clean in God's eyes. If you're listening to those words, think of the word clean. Like when you wash your hands, it feels good to be clean after they were dirty. That's who we are. Sometimes we don't live like that, but that's who we are. I've been saved. I've been moved from darkness to light. And I love out of the universe. So that's who you are, right? It doesn't have anything to do with your accomplishments. And if you anchor your life in those things, you're in trouble. If you're anchoring them now, I can guarantee you there is a tension between that and this if you're a child of God. Because this doesn't ever change. This is who you are. Plain and simple. So the question we look at, too, is how does our worldview of myself get altered? And then what difference does it make anyway, right? See, Jesus' servanthood, we can't replicate that, right? I can't give up my prerogative to deity. I can't do that because I'm not God. Rule number one, God's got an I'm not, right? That's where you get everything settled, everything moves out from there. You get that wrong, you're going to be in trouble. So... But let's look back at Paul. Remember who he was. He was an absolute paramount success in his culture. Absolutely successful. Nobody would deny that. He was literally on this incredible arc for success. But in God's eyes, he was not only a failure, but he was persecuting his very person. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's amazing. Because to throw one of God's sons in prison is to do it to him, right? Remember what Paul had just told them before he said, this is what you're supposed to do. Let's run back there real quick. If you've had any encouragement from being united, this is Philippians 2.1, any comfort from his love, fellowship with the Spirit, tenderness or compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, he's not talking about some spirit and purpose that you just make up and say, oh, you're going to sing Kumbaya, we are one in the spirit. No, not just singing songs. No, it's actually, what is the purpose? What is the love and the spirit that he's talking about? It's that of the Lord Jesus, right? Plain and simple. Anybody who is a believer is united in Christ. You've experienced fellowship, tenderness, and compassion we're supposed to have the same purpose. And if you look around the landscape of Christianity in the world today, uh, unity of purpose is not super high on the list. Um, however many years ago it was, back when I was in seminary, there were 33,000 Protestant denominations in the world. <laughs> That's a lot of denominations. <laughs> 33,000. I'm sure there's more now because people split and split and split. And, and that's not actually church planning, by the way, when you split uh, from a church. Um, but some people call it that. So... Also, growing as a church is not necessarily robbing members from other churches, just FYI. We're supposed to actually uh, throw the nets into the waters where the unbelievers are and then pull them into the body, right? So let's not forget that. But anyway, back to our topic here. Verse 3 says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition is this, right? It's doing something, having ambition for myself. I'm going to do this. My ambition is going to be focused on me. Ambition is not by itself bad. It's like if you have an ambition to finish a marathon, 
Go for it. I mean, it's not bad if you're like, I want to have an ambition to finish a marathon because I want to elevate myself and show everyone how great I am. Well, then that's not a good thing. But if you say, I want to finish the marathon because I'm a, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit and I want to be a good steward of my body, I want to do it to the glory of God, then, then run. Run. It's awesome. I can't run a marathon. I watched my wife run one once, but uh, it was, uh, I didn't make it there. If I would have fallen off, it would have been awesome, but as long as I didn't hurt myself, just caught myself. I mean, I'm going to like, put some kind of duct tape here or something so I don't fall I'm going to back up. Okay. So it says, but in, in contrast to that in verse 3, in humility, do what? Consider others better than yourselves. I mean, could you, if he had said any phrase that is more contrary to the world's values, imagine walking down the street and going up and, and walking to the hobo underneath, you know, the I-44 or whatever overpass and saying, um, First off, getting close enough to where you can actually smell their odor, right? Because uh, people stink. If you haven't been around people who don't bathe, they smell really bad. Um, get close enough to smell people's bad breath. That's sort of a rule of thumb also. God, God's God and you're not. Get close enough to people to smell their bad breath. Second, to walk up to that person and say, maybe don't say anything, but figure out how you can behave in a manner that shows that person that you think that they are, look at the words here, better than me. Is that contrary to the world, way that the world values things? Yes or no? It's, not, it's like, contrary is not the right word. It's like uh, the antithesis of, right? It is the absolute antithesis of how the world thinks to say that you're better than yourself. Or than, <laughs> they're better than yourself, I mean. It says each of you should look only to your, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So it doesn't say that you should be like, oh, I'm not going to eat so that other people can eat. Well, eat a hamburger and then buy a hamburger for the hungry guy, right? That's what that means. It's not super duper complicated. It's when I buy tacos, let's find a hungry guy and buy him some tacos. Um, or maybe he doesn't like tacos, but I'm from Guatemala. I live in Guatemala, so I, I, I like tacos. But anyway, look not only to your interests, but to the interests of others. So my question is this. A person who has an altered worldview because of their relationship with Jesus, what word would best define that person according to what we just looked at in Philippians here. Christ took on the very nature of what? He became the whole inseparable nature and essence of a servant. So that if you want to know what a servant looks like, look to Jesus. So that if the world in their utter lostness wants to know what a servant looks like, who are they supposed to look to? Us! Jesus isn't here right now. He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting to return in glory. He's not here. Not sitting in the chair. Not driving on the tollway. Not eating tacos. Jesus is in glory. Where does his spirit dwell? In us. We are the body of Christ. Paul wasn't just making crap up when he said that. He wasn't just saying, oh, I'm going to make up a really cool metaphor for... No! He means that we're Christ's body. That's why Jesus ascended at the right hand of the Father, looked at Saul and said, you're persecuting me because they were hurting and they were murdering members of his body. So let me ask you a question again. When people want to know what a servant looks like, to whom do they look? Us. So the really hard question is, what are they seeing? What is the world seeing when they look at us? we're supposed to have a radically altered worldview, 
then does the world look at the church and say, man, they're the best servants on the planet? I don't think so. Sometimes they do. You know what? Look at history. You know where hospitals came from? Believers did them. You know where orphanages came from? Believers did them. You know where prison reform started? Believers. You know who abolished slavery in the British Empire? Believers. You know who was at the head of the civil rights movement? Believers. Amazing. Because the world is supposed to look at us and see servants. But we spend way too much time anchoring ourselves in the world's value, in what the world thinks is important. Instead of taking our identity, because look at me, you are redeemed. You are holy. You are righteous in God's eyes. You are adopted as a son. You are living. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. This is true. You are precious and amazing and priceless in his eyes. You're filled with this Holy Spirit. You've been sent out. You've been given the word of God. You are those things. Because of your identity, you can then empty yourself of your anger in those things right there. And that's what Paul did. He did not value the fact that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews or a Pharisee or of the tribe of Benjamin or zealous. He took, he took his anchor out of those things. And whoever wrote the book of Hebrews said that Jesus is the anchor of our soul. And he flung his anchor and he sunk it into Jesus. And as the winds and the waves of this broken, messed up world blow us around, we don't go too far because we're anchored in the truth of who Jesus is. And because of who he is, that changes who I am and it changes my understanding of myself. Any of this making any sense? So this next weekend, we have the chance to do something cool called Church in the Park, right? We've made a big distinction that we're not going into the park here to do Church in the Park so that we can do stuff for the community. I mean... Yes, we're going to buy a bunch of fried chicken, and you guys are all going to make yummy sides and desserts and bring way too much food, and we're going to eat it all over there. And yes, that will be for the community, but we want to worship with the community. It's a huge distinction. Much of mission work in the world has been done by missionaries doing stuff for people, which in some senses is wonderful. It's far for a missionary to do something with someone. Come along beside somebody, find a national believer, and say, let's go. Let's go preach the gospel. You don't know how? I'm going to teach you. And then you're going to go do it. And then I'm going to go do it somewhere else. That's what we're supposed to do. Go alongside people. Say, you don't know Jesus? Do you want to know Jesus? No? Well, walk with me. I'm going to serve the dickens out of you. And I'm going to love you like crazy. And I'm going to tell you about Jesus. I'm going to pray knees off for you that the Holy Spirit would rip you out of your sin and save you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to go wherever. I'm going to help you. And I'm going to be your friend. And by the love of Jesus, you're going to get saved. And teach you how to save other people. And then I'm going to teach you how to teach him how to save other people. And that's how it works. That's how we have the gospel today because Paul said, I reject these things and I hate the Gentiles and so God made me a missionary to them. He hated the Gentiles. And you know why you have the gospel today? Because Paul gave it to somebody who gave it to another Gentile, who gave it to, I'm not a Jew. He gave the gospel to the Gentiles and it came down through someone else and they gave it to you and you have it today. It's amazing. So at the church in the park, the point of us doing all that is to go and worship with 
people. And yes, I mean to worship with people who don't even know who Jesus is. Will they know what they're worshiping? No, they can watch us do it. And then we can worship there. They can hear the gospel. And when it comes time to eat your fried chicken and your whatever salad and, and grab a piece, put it on a plate and find somebody you don't know and have a meal with them. Don't provide a meal for them. Have one with them. Talk to them. Talk to them. Serve them. It's not some huge event meant to, wow, look how great we are in the community. It's us as a whole group of servants going out there and saying, we're going to serve and love alongside of you. All to the glory and the praise of Jesus. So that's where we're going to end right here. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, and he should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when we empty ourselves and serve, that's exactly what we do. Please pray with me. Lord, we love you. I thank you, Jesus, that I cannot even comprehend the impossible difference between your deity and the very nature of a servant. I can't wrap my brain around all that that happened. Would you help us, Lord, because of who you have made us in Christ Jesus, help us to serve, give us a heart to empty ourselves before you, and to come to you and ask you to help fill us with your spirit that we could serve this world in which we live. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and sing this last song. And and as we do, uh, let's not just sing a pretty song and go home, but let's sing this song in light of the word that has been shared with us. Let's take it in. um, Let it engulf your heart, your mind, your soul.